How many years have flown by and we seem to end up in the same place as we were the year before? If we want to grow in our relationship with God, there's one thing we can do in 2024 that will make more difference than anything else. Read the Bible. I'll be reading the Bible this year, and I invite you to read it with me in a Bible reading program called Reading the Bible Lands. It includes Bible Lands photos, videos, and devotionals, and live Zoom calls with me. Find out more at readingthebiblelands.com. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. In today's episode, we'll search for and find the secret to satisfaction. Now, I know that's a big promise, but remember, satisfaction is a journey rather than a destination. When we get really comfortable, we tend to treat important information like it doesn't matter. The passage we're going to look at today in the Bible in today's episode reminds us to be careful that life and death information doesn't become ho-hum. I'll even tell you how I learned that on an airplane of all places. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. I grew up with a situation in my family that required me to fly on airplanes a lot. In fact, by the time I was 18, I did the math one time. I had ridden on an airplane at least 400 times by the time I was 18 years old. And uh, thankfully, I don't fly that much now, but uh, uh, it got to where, even as a kid, and I mean by the age of like eight or nine, they always had sat you right up front, and it was with Southwest Airlines. Um, remember Braniff? Braniff? I used to fly Braniff as well. Braniff's gone the way of all good uh, airplanes. But then it was Southwest, and Southwest used to have for kids that were under 18 these little hearts that they'd stick on your, basically it was an ID tag, so if you wandered off, they'd figure out who you belonged to. But I'd always sit right up in front with my little heart, and the uh, stewardess, of course, would come up right in the front, and they would do the, the routine, you know, when, when oxygen, you know, falls down, when the oxygen level drops and the, the mask's going to fall down, and here's how you do your seatbelt, and the exit rows are back here. I mean, they just go through the whole rigmarole. And they had trained them. I mean, like Southwest was like a franchise where they had like a script. And I heard this so often. I could have stood up beside the lady and done it with her. You know, oxygen mass, exit rows right here, the whole thing. And um, anyway, like I said, I, I, when I travel now, It's fascinating to watch people during this time because people aren't paying attention to these things. And I like to surprise the, uh, we don't call them stewardesses now, what do we call them? Flight attendants. I like to surprise the flight attendants by paying attention. I will actually put down whatever it is I'm reading, take out my earbuds, and look at them. And they like start to look at me like, you know, why are you staring at me? Because <laughs> I'm supposed to be paying attention, that's why. 
But it's, it's amazing when you look around at people reading, talking, anything but listening, and life and death information becomes ho-hum. I mean, what if you actually needed to know where the flotation device was? You know? Of course, in Texas, there's, we just fly over a few lakes. You don't need a whole lot of flotation devices here in Texas. By the time you, you land and skid and hit the, hit the lake, you'll be, yeah, you'll be in the trees. But I also find that for a lot of people, coming to church is a lot like what riding that airplane was. I don't mean it makes you sick. I mean, you, it becomes so routine that it's like ho-hum. And I was paying attention today in big church, as we call it, and it's the same in our class. But in big church, um, have you noticed you could set your watch to what we do every week? You could set your watch to what we do every week. It is a, it is a routine. I mean, <laughs> it's funny sometimes. I know Chuck's material so well that I can sometimes think, okay, next he's going to say this. And he usually does. <laughs> oh, that's great. But we've got so much of the familiarity can be dangerous for us. Because we approach, we, we approach what's familiar as if it doesn't matter. We've heard all the songs before. We've heard the sermons sometimes before. We could say it better than the Sunday school teacher. Everything is familiar, and therefore it becomes irrelevant, just like listening to emergency procedures in an airplane. That is, until you actually need them. We have to be careful when life and death information becomes ho-hum. Listen to what Peter wrote to his readers. Peter says, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter. Paul said it this way. He said, to write the same things again is no trouble for me. And it is a safeguard for you. I like that word, safeguard. Because the basics of the Christian life are also the essentials of the Christian life. You never see someone whose life, the bottom drops out of their life because they failed on a little bitty piece of doctrine that has to do with eschatology. It's usually something that is very, very basic that we've taken for granted, and we just sort of let slide. One of the things that's so essential about us, about the Christian life, is gratitude. And one of the things we'll talk about today is that, one of the most basic of all biblical attitudes. In fact, if you're struggling with discontent or bitterness or anger, it's precisely this attitude that we need to shore up. So turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. We've already been in this chapter a few times. It's uh, got a lot in it. This is the chapter on the feasts. And we've been here before as we've looked at the Day of Atonement. We've looked at Passover. We've looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And I've thought about it as I looked at this chapter for this morning, that God never gave Israel a feast whose purpose was for them to all come together and beg him to provide. It was instead to come together to thank him for the fact that he already has. God keeps his promises. And in his promise to take care of them and his promise to take care of us, we come together to worship a God who is faithful. Not We don't come together to beg a God to be faithful, but he already is. And from their perspective, they praised God in the Passover for delivering them from slavery. They praised God with the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they, uh, and the Feast of First Fruits, where God provided for their crops. You never had, to, had a feast that asked God to meet needs, but, but rather that we praise God for having already done it. Because he's been faithful, we know he will be faithful. Now, as I said, we've been in Leviticus 23 before, and you may remember, in fact, I think we may have even talked about it some last week, that the Passover and the first fruits and all this stuff that we look at in Leviticus, the New Testament refers to this as a shadow of Jesus, that Jesus is the one casting the shadow. And the shadow, if the the sun is, is basically shining toward where the shadow is in the Old Testament, then we know that these things in Leviticus 23, the Passover, is Jesus, our Passover lamb. He laid down his life for us. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is our response to that, that we live an unleavened life. The Feast of First Fruits is celebrating that God has given a little bit, and we know that he'll give more. The New Testament talks about that connecting with Jesus, and that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, the first one to rise from the dead and meaning that there's more to come, and that's us. So, and we also saw, it'll be a while back that we looked at it, all the way back in, I think, Leviticus 16, but uh, here we are in chapter 23, look at verse 11. We've read this before, but this sets us up for what we're going to be looking at in verse 15 and following. But look at Leviticus 23, 11. It says, He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, we didn't read verses 9 and 10, but it's basically introducing the Feast of First Fruits, which we just said is anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. And so when it says in verse 11 that he shall wave it on the day after the Sabbath, what day is that? Sunday. What day did Jesus rise from the dead? Sunday, exactly. So this is looking forward or anticipating or shadowing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that sets us up for verse 15. Verse 15 says, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, in other words, that Sunday, from the day when you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So don't get all confused with all the, the 50 days and the seven Sabbaths, and it's just the, the water gets muddy quick if you're not really paying attention to what he's saying. But basically, on that, that special Sunday that we just talked about, you're going to count uh, seven Sabbaths, or 49 
days plus one, and you have 50 days, 50 days. This is called Pentecost. Pente means five, and it's the idea of 50, 50 days after this particular uh, feast of first fruits. It says that you're going to bring a, an offering to the Lord, a new grain offering to the Lord. So Pentecost comes after first fruits. First fruits says God gave some, and he's going to give more. Pentecost is, wait, what do you know? God actually did what he said. He gave more. And so it's, it's a celebration that God did exactly what we, um, what we hoped he would, what he said that he would. And every year you would have these feasts. Every year the basics were hammered home. As Christians, we tend to think about Pentecost in a different way. What do we, what do we associate Pentecost with? Birthday of the church. I was hoping you'd say that. Some in here might refer to J. Dwight Pentecost, who was also um, in our ranks or was back in the day. But the beginning of the church, exactly. Now, you don't have to turn there, but if we were to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we would read these words. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. I like the way the, uh, the old King James translates this verse. It says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. What a neat way to translate that. And I think that uh, the King James nailed it there because it's, this is the ultimate fulfillment, Luke is saying, as he writes in the book of Acts. The day of Pentecost had come when it had fully come. In other words, the shadow is now being drawn back to the fulfillment of that shadow. That Pentecost looked forward to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this, of course, is what happened on Pentecost. The the promised Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31 promised not only that God would forgive sins, but also promised that the Holy Spirit would come. And if you think about it, Pentecost or the the Feast of Weeks, was the only feast that didn't have a historical connection. Passover had a historical connection, and the other feasts had some sort of historical connection. Pentecost didn't. And in the time of Christ, it came to be associated with God giving the law to Israel. The Bible doesn't say that. That was just the tradition that was set up at that time. So, uh, But nevertheless, Luke sort of plays off of that, when he says that the fulfillment of Pentecost had come, that the giving of the law is not just the law written down, but now, as Jeremiah says, with the Holy Spirit given to them, that the law is written on their hearts. And so the the ultimate fulfillment of the coming of, or the giving of the law, was the Holy Spirit coming and living within God's people. And of course, from our perspective as well, this is when the church began. Um, Now look down at verse 23. Verse 23, and we jump to the feasts on the other part of the year. Now the fall feasts. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying in the seventh month on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. So this is the Feast of Trumpets. On the first of the seventh month, you would blow horns. Now, you'd always blow horns to begin a new month, but this one was special. 
This, uh, these trumpets called God's people together in preparation for the fall festival, particularly Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, when all sins would be forgiven. You may remember we looked at this back in chapter 16, so we're going to skip this part here about the Day of Atonement because we've already looked at it when we looked at chapter 16. But the, the trumpets called God's people to leave what they were doing and to come and worship. Uh, we have it here in our church. I had it in my church growing up. I grew up a little Baptist boy in San Antonio, Texas, and I can still remember walking in, and the organist would begin just going to town on that organ, and when I would look at the, at the brochure, not the brochure, what's it called? Bulletin. Sorry. Sacrilege. Call my, ba- my Baptist bulletin a brochure. The order of service, or whatever you call it, It says, call to worship. Call to worship. You know that? Do we still have that in our brochure? What's it called? Our bulletin? (laughs) Call to worship. And call to worship really just means have a seat, doesn't it? We're about to start. It's a call to worship. The trumpets did that, but they were much more official in their purpose. The trumpet, when you heard the trumpet... This was God's call to come, to leave the mundane, the regular things that you're doing throughout the week or the month or the year and come to worship with God's people. And anticipating the presence of God, there is uh, one more feast that comes up. Interesting, there isn't a direct connection to the Feast of Trumpets. Some try to make the rapture a connection. It might be a connection, except that the New Testament doesn't make the connection. So if we say that the rapture is the, uh, um, the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, I just say, hold that with an open hand, because the, the New Testament doesn't make that direct connection like it does with all these others. It could be, but, but we don't know. Um, just don't know. So, anticipating his presence, there's one more feast down in verse 33. Verse 33, again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month, so now two weeks later, is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. The feast of booths, also called tabernacles, also called ingathering, it's from the Hebrew word sukkot, which basically means like a, a tent or a tabernacle. And it, it reminded them, it basically, it reminded them of when they wandered in the wilderness. God basically took them back to the place of where they wandered in booths or in huts, and they were commanded to, uh, to live in huts for a week. Now, how many people here like to camp? Well, look at all those few hands. I hate camping. I'm not a big fan of camping. Yeah, exactly. Past tense. You know, when we were younger and had energy and didn't know any better, we would love camping. My daughter, my dog loves camping. But boy, it's so much work. Because camping, the whole, thing, the whole thing about camping is you're going out into the, into the wilderness and you're roughing it. I don't like to rough it. I don't have to rough it. And so what do you do? You pack everything to go camping, which makes it a terrible experience. 
Anyway, I was in Israel one time, and the Feast of Tabernacles was coming up, and I knew it was, and I knew this particular Jew, and I, and I asked him, I said, hey, you looking forward to the Feast of Tabernacles? He goes, no. He says, I hate camping. <laughs> he made the connection. But actually, they do it in a different way. I mean, everyone sort of got their own thing, but you have these booths that you, like, keep in the storage closet like we keep our Christmas decorations. And it's basically these four walls, and what they would do is they go out on their balcony, and they set up you know, on your balcony this booth, and you live there. Of course, if you need to go to the restroom, you just go inside. If you need to use the microwave, you just go inside, you know? Now, that's camping. That's the way to do it. But they still do this today. And the idea is, however it's done, is that you put yourself in a, in a place that forces you to remember. It forces you to remember. And um, it causes you to think back of when you wandered in the wilderness or when, when your race did, when the Jewish, the Hebrew people wandered for 40 years and God provided. This is what the purpose of it. Uh, now, verse 42. Skip a few and look at verse 42, end of the chapter. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. It was a reminder of where God had brought them. He delivered them from slavery. He provided for them during the wilderness. And the text also talks about the fact that you would take these branches and rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Kathy and I had uh, some good friends that grew up in a different part of Texas where there's a really famous national park. And so we went there with them one time, and they grew up in this area. They were very familiar with it. They were showing us all around, and they said, there's, a, there's an ice cream stand that's still here that was here from when we were kids. And they said, it's fantastic. Let's go. Let's get some ice cream. We said, sure. So we walked over and got the ice cream, and I forget it had this unique name. But we got it, and they just started lapping it up and loving it. And Kathy and I took a couple of licks and then just kind of looked at each other. And I leaned over and I said, does yours taste like chemicals? She says, yes. And it was gross. Have you ever had ice cream that tasted like chemicals? Well, this particular place did. And they, but this other couple was loving it. And I didn't think about it at the time. I just thought, well, that's just weird. But then, but then I thought about the fact that nostalgia had taken over in their memory. And we can do that. We can glorify experiences so that we don't even see them from what they really are. We can be eating bad ice cream and loving it because we grew up with it in a context where it was fun. And I've thought about that through the years since that ha has happened, how essential it is to be regularly in the Bible. Because otherwise, if you just read it and you think, yep, Jesus walked around, did miracles, yep, rose from the dead, he's coming back, I mean, the rest is just details. Right. But there's a lot in there that matters with regard to our daily walk with God. And if we just sort of go on a sanctified memory 
we're going to begin to skew off and we'll be lapping ice cream that tastes like chemicals. It isn't truth that we're enjoying. It's our version of it. And that can be dangerous. Hey everyone, Wayne here. We have all heard about the missionary journeys of the great Apostle Paul, but there's nothing like seeing these biblical places for yourself. Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so many more places. How would you like to see all of these places for real? Well, you can. Registrations are well underway for my upcoming tour to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. There's still room for you to experience these places that will change the way you read the New Testament. I'm certain. Check out the video and complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. There's a lot in there that matters with regard to our daily walk with God. And if we just sort of go on a sanctified memory, we're going to begin to skew off and we'll be lapping ice cream that tastes like chemicals. It isn't truth that we're enjoying. It's our version of it. And that can be dangerous. At Sukkot, every seven years, the law was read in the hearing of all Israel. Now, let's leave Leviticus, fast forward here, a book, to Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 31. Remember, Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. So you've got Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, but then Deuteronomy says it again to a new generation. And when they talk about, when Moses writes about the Feast of Booths, he adds something here that's, that's important for us to see, a principle. Deuteronomy 31, look down at verse 10. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, that's Yom Kippur, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, You shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of the law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Built into God's plan for his people was a regular hearing of the Bible. Every seven years, they would come together. Can you imagine if you only heard the Bible every seven years? I'd be licking ice cream that didn't taste very good in about seven weeks. I need need to be in the Word on a regular basis. But the principle is very clear here. And remember, they didn't have Bibles in their laps. They were listening to it. And it's sort of a sidebar, but the Bible, if you think about it, was actually written to be heard first, not to be read. We read it, we talk about the importance of reading it, and we should be reading it. But the Bible originally was designed to be heard. And in the original Hebrew, there's even some mnemonic memory devices baked in that help memory. Like uh, we know in Psalm 119, that's probably the easiest. 
that begins with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet that assists in memory to help you memorize the Word of God. And so every seven years at the Feast of Booths, when you would remember that um, when you would remember that God had brought you through the wilderness, he would also read the entire law. The, the law would be read every time you got together on every seven years to have this regular repetition. It is essential that I repeatedly read my Bible. So, say that with me out loud. It is essential that I repeatedly read my Bible. I hope you believe that because it is true. If we don't repeatedly read the Bible, then we will have a sanctified memory of it and we will have a skewed version of it. We have to continually renew the mind because the mind grows weeds. The mind puts chemicals in your ice cream and you won't realize it if if you're not in the Word on a regular basis. It is essential that I repeatedly read my Bible. He took them back to, in their mind's eye, where they came from. The, The purpose of getting in the huts or in the booths was to remember God has delivered you from slavery. You were slaves. You were in bondage. You were under the boot of the Egyptians, and God delivered you with a powerful hand. Now, take that out of the context of redemption from Egypt. Put that in Jesus is our Passover lamb now in the context of redemption from sin, from hell, and, and put yourself in that place. It's important we remember that. And we have also a ritual that we go through regularly, we're supposed to, that reminds us of that redemption. And what do we call it? Easter, right? The Lord's Supper, right, right. That's okay, Harry. You're batting 999, okay? Can you, can you bat 999? Um, we need to remember it, because otherwise we'll forget it. And so baked into our lives as Christians is this is God trying to give us these triggers to remind us where we've come from. Now, don't say it out loud because you'll immediately be able to remember it, but think about where you've come from. We all have different backgrounds. Some bad, some really bad, some exceedingly blessed. But whether it's exceedingly blessed or whether it's really bad, we have all been saved from, from a, a damnation that we deserved. Because all have sinned. I've sinned. You have sinned. And sin is deserving of separation from God. That's what's right. But God in his mercy has sent the Passover lamb Jesus to die in our place. And his blood has been applied to our door, as it were. And we believe that, when we believe that, our sins are placed on the Passover lamb. The lamb died in our place. We didn't have to die. Jesus died. And he rose again to show that that it's been paid for. This is what we remember. We can be so comfortable in our blessings that we forget where we've come from. Please don't ever forget where you've come from. On Mother's Day weekend, I went and um, drove to my mom's grave in Sanger, Texas. And uh, 
<clears throat> my, mom, my mom, as I've told you before, had a really difficult life, especially the last years of her life. Difficult for her and difficult for me and difficult for our family. But it's, um, my roots are not, not uh, they're, they're, it's a mixed bag of blessings. Let me just say that. There's huge blessings, huge blessings in my life, but also a lot of pain in my childhood. And it's easy to look back and to just sort of gloss over that and to realize that if God had not reached down and plucked me out of the fire, that I could have gone in a completely different direction. Still could, apart from his grace. And so could you. We need to remember where we've come from. The, the pit, as Isaiah says, from which we have been dug. God's grace. And Sukkot, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, did that. It reminded them, here's where you came from. God took care of you. God is faithful. And so we celebrate and we rejoice in that. Now, let's leave Deuteronomy and flip to the New Testament. Look at the book of John at an occasion where the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles occurred in the life of Christ. John chapter 7. And on your way, let me just remind you that the prophet Zechariah also talked about the future of the, of, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said that when the Messiah reigns on earth from Jerusalem, that all nations will come every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you don't come, you don't get rain. So there's a big motivation to come if you want rain on your land. Zechariah says that's coming in the future. And so there was an anticipation that there was an association that one day in the future, the Feast of Booths would be associated with the kingdom. And this was well known in the time of Christ, so much so that when Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did Peter say when he saw Moses, Elijah, and Jesus? Let's build, okay, redeem yourself, Harry. Let's build booths. Good job. Three booths. All right, you're back up to a 1,000 now. Good job. Exactly. Peter says, hey, let's get the Feast of Booths going. Why would he say that? Because Peter understood that when the kingdom comes... We, we're, we're celebrating the Feast of Booths. And so, in other words, Peter was saying, let's get the kingdom rolling. This whole cross stuff you've been talking about, let's get rid of that. Let's get the kingdom going. This was the expectation. So tabernacles not only look back at the wilderness wanderings and God's faithfulness, tabernacles also look forward to the coming kingdom. It was associated with the coming kingdom. Now, John chapter 7, right in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself knows, seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourself. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. He said that two times now. Verse 6, my time is not yet here. Verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. And then the verses after that, Jesus, it says that Jesus went up anyway. He just went up in secret. 
So Jesus didn't mean he wasn't going up to the feast. What he meant is he wasn't going up to the feast for the time to be fully come. There was this expectation that the Feast of Booths going to usher in the kingdom. His disciples were saying, hey, if you're the Messiah seeking to be doing this Messiah stuff, don't do it here in backwater Galilee. Go to Vegas. Go to Jerusalem, where all the superstars are supposed to do their stuff. And Jesus basically says, it's not time. For you, any time's good. My time is the time that the Father has set, and it's not time yet. Now, this isn't the first time that his family has sort of given him a gentle nudge to get the kingdom rolling. Back in John chapter 2, remember with the water turned to wine? Who nudged Jesus to get the kingdom rolling at that time? Mama, that's right. They said, uh, she said, they've run out of wine. Implication, Messiah, when he comes, he's going to take care of the wine. Get this all the way back from Genesis. And what did Jesus say to Mary? Woman, my time has not yet come. And then he, then he does the wine. It's not like, I'm not going to do the wine. He didn't mean that. What he meant was, I'm not showing myself as Messiah yet. My time has not yet come. So there was this expectation of, of Messiah bringing in the kingdom, and the Feast of Booze was associated with it. Now, there's a whole long conversation when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. We'll skip all that. Look down at verse 37 now. This is such a wonderful connection. I love this. Verse 37, John chapter 7. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, so we're now at the end of the week. Everyone's been living in booths for a week. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John doesn't tell us, but the original readers would have known a tradition that we don't know. At the time of the preparation for the morning sacrifice, a priest would go down to a pool in Jerusalem. In fact, you can go there today and see the ruins of this pool. They're actually enlarging it to show the whole pool, which will be magnificent when they finally get it done. It's called the Pool of Siloam. This is the very southern tip of the city of David. You can go there. You can see it today. In fact, Jesus did a miracle there in the, in the book of John by healing a, a blind man. But anyway, there was a tradition that happened every year. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the Mishnah tells us, and so we know that it was happening, and it was on everybody's mind in the context of this. And we know that Jesus was thinking about it because of what he just said, that, um, that rivers of living water. Why would he make a reference to that? Because a priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, dip a pitcher in Siloam, walk back up, a, up, the, up the road called the Pilgrim Road, in fact, this road, they're also uncovering in Jerusalem today. And if you go to Jerusalem in the next probably year or so, you'll be able to walk this full road up to all the way up to the temple. The priest would walk back up to the temple and would pour at the base of the altar this water. And when he poured the water, the people would recite or sing from Isaiah. And I'll read you, Isaiah 12, verse 3 says, Therefore you will joyously draw water, from the springs of salvation. So this is on people's mind. And so when Jesus illustrates this, he brings the point, as he said there, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
In other words, salvation comes from me. That's what he was saying to them. His brothers, though, didn't get it. The, the Jewish leaders of that time didn't get it. How could they not get it? Think about Jesus' brothers. I mean, you grew up with the Messiah. How could you not know he was the Messiah? Answer, because you grew up with the Messiah. There's nobody in your family that's special, right? Except you and me. The local yokel Jesus was not considered special when he showed up back in Nazareth saying, by the way, the scripture I've just read, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. There's like, what? Let's go throw him off the cliff. This is how they treat the Messiah. <laughs> and John's brothers were, uh, Jesus' brothers were exactly the same. How could they not see it? This week, I was, um, I ate a hamburger or something. And in the middle of the night, you know, hamburgers do what hamburgers do. They're great going in, but in the middle of the night, they're not so great. So I was getting up to go to the bathroom and uh, find some Tums to try to deal with it. And I didn't turn on any lights because they didn't want to wake up the dog. And I certainly didn't want to wake Kathy up. So I was trying to be as quiet as I could. Went in the bathroom, didn't turn on any lights. And the, the counter, I knew that the Tums were there on the counter someplace. <laughs> so I reached down and grabbed. And then I went around to get in our closet because, you know, Tums make noise when you open them. And I didn't want to wake anybody up. So I reached down and pulled the top off, and it didn't feel right. And I thought, what is this? And I felt of it. I had grabbed my electric razor. <laughs> it's about the same size as my Tums thing. You imagine if I had accidentally flipped that thing on and put it on my lips? I would have woken up the dog in that case. But anyway, why didn't I see it? Because it was pitch black. Why didn't the people of Jesus' day see that he was the Messiah? Because they were in the dark. They were blind to the truth. All it takes is flipping on the light and you know where the Tums are. All it takes is for God to turn on the light and you can see, as many of us by his grace have, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But the people of that time didn't get it. So Jesus issues this magnificent invitation when he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The priest, dipping in the pitcher, going to the altar, pouring out, people saying from Isaiah, Draw water from the springs of salvation. Jesus says, I am that spring. I am that salvation. So other than what we've all said out loud together to read our Bibles on a regular basis, here's another principle that's a little bit longer. I tried to make it as short as I could, but it didn't work out. Here it is. Remembering where God has brought us and in expectation of where he will call us. So remembering the past, remembering the future. Sincerely give him thanks. Sincerely give him thanks. To give God thanks is a phrase that's so threadbare. I tried to think of a way to make that new, but I couldn't. So can you just make it new on your own? Give God thanks. Think about where you've come from. Bad background, good background, whatever it was, there was sin in your background. And apart from the grace of God, we would have all been condemned. Think about where he's calling you to. The future that he has for us is glory in his presence. 
and in light of your past, in light of your future, genuinely give God thanks. And that's the secret to satisfaction, is gratitude. From where has God brought you an expectation of where he'll take you? Being grateful. Being grateful to God is your oxygen mask when the air is thin. It is your seatbelt when life gets turbulent. It is your flotation device when you think that you're going to drown. Gratitude forces you to look at your blessings. It's not wishful thinking. It is a reality check. It is a reality check. Being constantly in the scriptures and being grateful to God gives us the reality check that apart from his grace, we would all be lost. That we are not the gift to the body of Christ we think we are. We are here because of the grace of God and only because of the grace of God. The people had sung Isaiah 12, and I won't ask you to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. And if you would like, because we're going to pray right after I read it, you want to close your eyes and just listen. Isaiah 12, only six verses. But again, the context of Isaiah 12 is looking forward to the kingdom of God, still future, when Jesus Christ is reigning on the earth from Jerusalem. They quote verse 3, you will, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. But this has a context, a beautiful context, and I'll read it to you, and then we'll dismiss in prayer. Isaiah 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song. For he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Father, thank you for Isaiah's beautiful picture of the coming kingdom of God, the magnificent motivation that we read here of giving thanks to you because, in Isaiah's own words, although you were angry with us, your anger is turned away. You have drawn water from the springs of salvation, and Jesus says that's him. And one day in the future, we will be able to say, with Israel and all those who were there, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, because we will be in the midst of our Lord Jesus and of all the, the saints of history Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation saints, all there together with us in the midst of the kingdom of God with Christ. Father, thank you for this, uh, this look as we've looked in Leviticus at these various feasts. Seem to be just an old, dry, irrelevant text until we see how the rest of the Bible shows its fulfillment in Jesus Christ as well as the prophecy looking forward to our, uh, to our coming time in the kingdom. 
We're grateful for the hope that you give us looking at the future. We're grateful for the grace you have given us as we look at the past. And in the meantime, Father, keep us faithful and in the word that we would not call bad ice cream good, that we would not see the realities of our life with a tainted view, but we would see them as they really are. And the word would give us that clarity to ourselves, to the, to the world, and to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Gratitude is the secret to satisfaction. Being grateful to God is our oxygen mask when the air is thin. It's that flotation device when we think we're going to drown. <laughs> and it forces us to look at our blessings and it's a reality check that we all need. Next time, we'll turn to Leviticus chapter 25 as we look at the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. Now, that may sound dull, but if you've listened along with us through our study of the Old Testament, it should be no surprise that these two holidays are going to hold a lot of significance for us today. In fact, they give us what we need to keep going when we feel like quitting. That's next on Live the Bible. And I'd also like to say, if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people each week. To give a one-time or monthly donation, just go to livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. That's livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. Thanks so much, and God bless. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.